Welcome to Mysterious Goings On, the podcast about creativity, writing, and mystery. Every week, we talk about all kinds of great fiction and meet the people who write it. We also feature explorations about creativity in all walks of life. Your host, Alex Greenwood, will join you right after this. So you may recall in December of uh, 2022 and then into January of 2023, there were numerous attacks on North Carolina substations, electrical substations, apparently because of gunfire, people shooting at substations. And, you know, it's all fun and games until you put thousands of people um, in the darkness in the middle of winter. Um, and that's what happened there. And it's scary. And it's something that if you've ever paid attention at all to just how, frankly, undefended our electrical systems are uh, it, it's a very scary thing that will keep you up at night so i love it though when an author can seize upon something like that presciently because there's no way he he wrote all this stuff up right after that because it's only been a few months but he he had come up with this before with his latest work called dark state a modern day thriller about a terrorist attack that takes down California's electric grid. And his name is Christopher J. Lynch. He's also the author of the One-Eyed Jack crime novel series about a professional blackmailer. The debut novel in the series was a 2013 Seamus Award finalist and a 2014 Writer's Digest honorable mention for genre fiction. He's also the author of Eddie, The Life and Times of America's Preeminent Bad Boy, the biography of Ken Osmond. He was the iconic child actor who played the conniving Eddie Haskell on the TV series, Leave it to Beaver. Oh man, I love it. I love it. That's such a great uh, out of left field uh, credit there. We're going to talk more about it as we welcome Christopher J. Lynch to Mysterious Goings On. Hi, Alex. Great to be here. Yeah. When did you get this idea about people uh, attacking the electrical grid? In a way, it was like I was kind of destined to write this book. Uh, reason being is I was a industrial electrician for a major oil refinery and we were having a project meeting. We had a big project you know, scheduled to, to kick off. And they were talking about what are called deliverables. And there was a piece of uh, uh, like a substation or something that was going to be delivered or was going to be installed during this, this uh, project. And somebody brought up, they said, well, when is that due? And they said, oh, that's nine months out. And so in the world of specialized electrical equipment, you know, this isn't stuff that you find at Home Depot or Lowe's or anything. And so my devious mind, I just got it started thinking, I thought, well, what if there was a, a component of the electrical grid that was critical and had equally as long a lead time? And as it turns out, it is. And it's the high powered transformers that make up the backbone of the grid and that you pass by a lot of times, you see them in substations and they're kind of like, like, look like big gray boxes and unfortunately, the substations, uh, most of them are not manned by any security. There's no cameras in a lot of cases. There's no uh, motion sensors. They're six foot high chain link fence with three strands of barbed wire on it. And, and honestly, uh, the attacks in North Carolina and Washington, and then the recent one that was plot that was just foiled in Baltimore, you honestly don't even need to get inside there because it can all be done with high powered rifles and just a couple well-placed shots and you're taking a, what was a active pulsing piece of electrical equipment, be it a transformer. And it, you've just turned it into about a, oh, hundred thousand to 600,000 pound paperweight. And there are a year lead time. We don't manufacture them in this country anymore. 
So we're at the mercy of Siemens overseas or China even. And so it just got me thinking and I started researching more and more about the grid. And the more I dug into it, it was like a rotten onion and every layer I peeled. And I was just like, this is absolutely ridiculous. So, uh, and what's ridiculous too, is there's websites out there, government run websites where you can just zoom in to an area and you can say, show me all the transmission lines there. And you just follow the transmission lines and it can overlay with like a Google Earth image. So you just follow the transmission lines where they kind of meet and you go, oh, I bet there's a substation there. Zoom right in and you've got the substation, you've got the address where it's located. And then you can even go to Google Street View and you can practically walk around the thing. So yeah, you can do a lot of, uh, a lot of recon. And like, like I say, you know, the smart terrorist, criminal, whatever, hey, they use Google Earth. You want to see what's, what the layout is of some place that you're going to break into? Go to Google Earth. Zoom in. Oh, I see. Yeah, there's a guard shack. You know, there's this, there's that. But uh, we're really vulnerable. And the book took me six years to write. And I did uh, an incredible amount of research. And I actually toured what's called Cal ISO, stands for Independent Service Operators. And that is the nerve center that runs the grid in California. And the reason I picked California, several reasons. I was a California native, I now uh, live in Tennessee. But also the fact that if you were going to plan on crippling any system, any large electrical system in the United States, California would be basically the juiciest one. You've got 40 million people, it's the most populous state. It's the fifth largest economy in the world and close to half of the US economy. So you don't have to, you don't have to take out the whole country. You just have to take out California. And we are going back to the dark ages, lickety split. So are you scared now, Alex? Um, look, I got to go. Um, <laughs> my therapist can get me in. So I think, good Lord, Christopher, that's just, I mean, look, I consider myself to be somewhat aware more than the average bear, but I guess I didn't realize how, how that scenario of, I mean, I'd always, I knew that our, I mean, you just have to drive around. You can see our substations and our, our, all that stuff. It's very vulnerable. Like you said, it's a barbed wire fence. And if you've got a rifle, boom, you, you can pick shots and get lucky, hopefully, or not hopefully, but if you're them, hopefully and take it out. But I had not thought about the ramifications beyond what we had, which is North Carolina, where what, 40,000 people were out of power for a little while, uh, which is not, by the way, not nothing. <clears throat> but the idea that, yeah, the, the California is the domino. If you take that down and the fifth, the world's fifth largest economy, which I did know that, but I just never put those pieces together, which is why you're obviously very good writer of thrillers. So <laughs> let me let me ask you something. Is Dark State built around a kind of a hero character, kind of like in your One-Eyed Jack series? Or who's the protagonist here? Well, there's several, several protagonists. And, and that was actually a challenge that I wanted to speak about is when you take down the electrical grid and 40 million people lose power, everybody loses power. I mean, everybody from a, a homeless person to a day laborer to a multimillionaire who may have a generator, but there's a limited amount of fuel and, and it's just not going to last forever. And so I had to narrow it down to about six uh, key protagonists or characters. And one of them is a single mom she manages a grocery store. Another one is a self-absorbed Hollywood celebrity. 
There's a homeless vet with PTSD. There's a paranoid prepper who he was a lot of fun to write. You know, as, as you know, the, the oddball ones are the, the funnest one to write. Absolutely. And then probably the biggest hero in the story, though, is the head of Cal OES. And Cal OES is California Office of Emergency Services. And I also had a private tour. I, I approached them and I, had a, I told them what I was writing. And I had a private tour and actually unfettered access to their experts. These are the people who would be responding in a situation like this. They're the ones who typically handle like forest fires, floods, uh, if there's a big earthquake. They're the group that comes to the rescue, if you will, along with FEMA and so forth. And uh, it, was, it was great. I, I basically had you know, unlimited access to their experts who all confirmed, by the way, that you're absolutely right. If this ever happens, we, we are just screwed. And so I have a newly minted director of that. She's a female and there had not been a female until just recently. So besides writing the book and having it come out and then having some substations attacked, I guess the other thing you can say that's prophetic about is that Cal OES now has a female head. And she was, she was a lot of fun to write. And I'm, I'm, I'm a pantser, you know, to a certain extent, although I had to really structure it, you know, with timing and so forth. So I didn't, you know, bog down on one character too long. I'm just a pantser. And, and it was just fun, as you know, when you kind of don't know what's going to happen, it's fun when you finally create that moment and you're like, ah, yeah, and turn the page. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, it was a lot of fun, but the, the paranoid prepper and the self-absorbed Hollywood celebrity was were great to write. Christopher, it's the best feeling when that happens, when the characters lead you, show you the way. It's funny, uh, my series, uh, second book, I introduced a fishing captain who was going to be kind of a one-off guy. I mean, God bless him, he became kind of as popular or probably more so at times than, than the lead character in my series. And, and that's okay, you know? Right. Um, uh, although part of me had to kind of, you know, mentally salve my, 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 my lead guy and say, look, he, he's your sidekick, it, it'll calm down. It's, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure it's how Shatner felt when uh, Spock became more popular than Captain Kirk, huh? you know, just, <laughs> it's the way it goes, man. I mean, but the interest, those interest, but the prepper people, and by the way, I, I'm not, okay, can I, can I, are we alone here? Can I just tell you something between you and me, Christopher? Go ahead. So I saw, I saw COVID coming. It was probably around December of uh, 19, because we all know 20s when, you know, hell broke loose, but right around then, because I, I, I'm a voracious consumer of news and, and, and podcasts and just paying attention and uh, certain, certain experts. And my little alarm bells were going off and I was trying to tell people this. I was like, this is probably not just the usual. Mm -hmm. And here's when, here's when shit got real at my house. Okay. My wife, I, I said to my wife, I'll be back. I'm going to Aldi. She said, what are you going to go to Aldi for? I said, just, I, I got to go get some stuff. I came back with like several boxes of canned food. This was like February week of first week of February. And I had, I always keep water around because, you know, water's, it's not a bad idea to have a few jugs of water around folks. I mean, people oh, no. like, well, even if you've got a well, if you don't have electricity, you probably can't get that water out of the well. Anyway. Okay. But I also, oh God, all right, here, I'm just going to admit it, Christopher, don't tell anyone. I also bought one of those tubs, those plastic tubs full of food, like the last, uh, a family of six for three months or something, it, it, which is basically you open it up and it's all these different things. But really what it is, it's little bags of salt <laughs> because they're with food in it, I guess. But the point is, I actually did some of those preppery things. Mm -hmm. 
what, what you're not talking about that. I'm probably on the edge of prepper. You're talking about the folks where it's it's more than just being sensible. It's a lifestyle. Can you get, get, fill us in on that? Uh, yeah, he and the reason I say he's paranoid is, I mean, this is a guy who comes home to his apartment and he he takes a different route when he drives home from work. He circles the block. Then he parks his car. He he immediately puts it into reverse and in case he has to get out of there. He takes his Glock handgun out and is ready to, to shoot. Then he goes up to his apartment and he walks by his apartment with his guns concealed now, but he gets out of his car finally. He walks by his apartment, but he doesn't stop and go in. He walks by and very slyly looks at the door to see if it's been jimmied or anything like that. Then he walks back, then he comes into the house, and then he, the house has foil all over, over all the windows, it's pitch black. He turns on this like super high lumen flashlight and is ready to blind anybody that's in there. And then he does, and he moves away from the door so he doesn't create a silhouette. And then he closes the door, he double locks it, then he goes through the house. He goes through the house, his own house like a SWAT team would go through. And then finally, that's it. Now he can switch on the lights and he's home. That's how paranoid he is. He has a buried school bus up in the hills. That's his bunker. And, oh, yeah, and listens to, uh, like, shortwave radio. There's some of these kind of, like, way out guys on there, and they're talking about race wars, and this is what's going to happen. Not to reveal too much, but his own paranoia is what uh, does him in in the book. He doesn't make it. And it's it's basically he becomes so paranoid, he, he, he ends up screwing up and killing himself. So I guess I spoiled it, but. Well, damn, man. No, it's fine by me because I'm going to read this. But I'm going to tell you, the butler did it. But I'm going to tell you, a lot of the time, though, with the, the paranoid folks is that they don't, they do not and will not trust anybody. And it's it's just this whole idea of this, this uh, self-reliance thing on steroids you've got to trust somebody sometime i think i don't oh, know yeah. i mean is that a is that something and i know you're not here to talk about the physio or the psychology of the prepper paranoid type i don't mean all preppers i mean the, we're talking about a guy who's clearly on right. the over the edge but is the prepper mentality in your opinion less about being prepared and to survive but more about uh, just just a, a distinct lack of a trust and a fear of everything or what what is that well, I think it's different levels. I mean, my wife and I have, because we had, uh, when we live in California, earthquakes a big thing. Yeah. So we have a 50 gallon drum that's designed to hold water. Yep. It's, we've got a, it's got a hand pump. We have two large boxes. And I'll tell you the best thing, if you want to buy stuff for long-term, get backpacking dehydrated meals. They last for 10 years. MREs only last about five. About five. Yeah. And so we have all those supplies and then we even have a jacuzzi and the jacuzzi, you've got 400, 500 gallons of water right right there. Now it's, it's not potable water per se, but like I always say, uh, show me a kid who ever died from inhaling a bunch of uh, swimming pool water, you know, at the public pool, you know, you're thirsty enough, you're going to drink it. You could, you could boil it, couldn't you, and be okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah it'll, it'll be fine. And, and I read lots of books on survival and then I even read books on barricades and bunkers i mean my list of books that i i ordered i'm i don't know if i'm on some list or something with the with the government but uh 
Oh, I, the research I did and, and so forth. But yeah, this is the kind of guy he, he sees us, uh, you know, the, the whole sky is dark now because all the lights are out. So you can see great. So he sees a satellite going overhead uh-huh. and he, he's like to the point of, he thinks it's looking at him. <laughs> he goes, you're watching me, aren't you? You son of bitches. You know, I mean, uh-huh. just like I said, over the top, which is, as you know, fun to write. You it's, know? it's a delight. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that too, that, that I'm not crazy for just taking some basic, preca- like I said, the constant, you know, the backpacking food, I have a whole tub of it, but I mean, of course I read it and I have high blood pressure. I'm like, Oh crap. Well, I guess if it's, I got to eat something, but it'll probably kill me with all the sodium, but <laughs> I won't die hungry. Um, yeah. But, but I, I love that. And you've got the hand pump and all that, you know, and you know, I, I just think that's just being, uh, 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 just being sensible to have some things put away, but a lot of people don't. It's scary, and, and I can't imagine. I'm sorry, I haven't got to the book yet, but I I could just see a scene though where your protagonists are talking about you know riots and food riots, and it, it, does it get into that at all? Where people are like, you know, this this shiz could get really real really fast. Is there kind of a do you kind of lay that out kind of for the reader, or is it just presumed? Do you think? No, 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 no. It gets it gets bad really really fast, mm. and. Uh, you know, there's so many things that people don't think about. Everybody thinks, well, the lights are going to go out in my house and my food might spoil. Well, cell, t- cell phone towers, yeah. they, most of them do not have backup generators. And yeah. they, they have backup batteries that are nominal good for about two to three days. Now, with everybody, like always happens after any disaster, everybody is trying to call everybody. Those batteries, are, you're, gonna, you're not going to be able to get through. And then those batteries are going to wear down. Now you just lost a component of your cell, cellular system. These towers are going to start going down. So you're not going to know what's going on. The, the only alternative you have is to go into your car and switch on the good old-fashioned radio mm. to listen to it. But uh, it's absolute chaos. Uh, you have no traffic signals. Right. Okay, so it's just gridlock after gridlock after gridlock. Very, very few gas stations have backup generators. Okay, so another good thing, as I always tell people is, you know, and I learned this in uh, emergency preparedness, is you should always keep your car between three quarter and full. Yep. Because you may have to get out of the state or at least out of the area. Okay, so you're not going to have any gasoline. You're not going to have communication, if any, for very long. All the frozen food, refrigerated food at supermarkets is going to start spoiling mm-hmm. and it's just going to be a mad dash the other thing even a supermarket most supermarkets don't have backup generators so now your point of sale doesn't work your scanner your laser scanner it doesn't work uh, what can happen in a situation like that is a lot of times and walmart's had this happen where they just they just give away the food yeah they just say we're just going to give it away and so that's what ends up happening but then you start having fights like you had with COVID. Yeah. And so just imagine COVID on steroids, where now it's not just, okay, as long as I get home and I don't have anybody breathe on me, I'm fine. But you, even if you get home, okay, with a big power outage like this, and there's even, I guess I'll uh, go off to the side here a little bit, because I only had six or seven main characters, well, there's 40 million stories. Right. And so what I peppered in the book is little vignettes where I have like, say, a day laborer from Mexico. 
I had uh, a restaurant manager and it, they're just one or two page little vignettes of how it affects them. I even did it not with non non humans. I had a cell tower and uh, talk about the battery and it's there's a thing called a watchdog circuit because I used to work on all this stuff. And so it's it's being drained down and it does this and it clicks off and I got cell maps of uh, San Jose. I even looked into a mortuary. Oh, wow. What happens to a mortuary? And oh. I got a tour of a mortuary. Mortuaries that will have no refrigeration. They most of them don't have any backup generators either. And we'll talk about the real the bigger problem with backup generators in a little bit. But mortuaries don't have backup generators. You cannot embalm somebody without a pump. There is a old yeah. gravity way of doing it, but speaking to the embalmer, she told me, well, good luck. She said, you have to do it to get your certification. But she said, especially in this day and age with everybody in their diets, she said, you're having to push and massage and try to get this stuff in there. So they can't embalm. Their refrigeration is going out. And even the oven or the the thing where they, where they cremate bodies, yeah. which I learned is called a retort. Even the retort won't work. So you're going to have bodies that can't be properly disposed of. This, okay, this, I, I, again, I, I got my therapist on speed dial. Hang on. <laughs> Jeez, Christopher. Oh, I, I, talk, <laughs> I mean, we're talking. This is it. It's all over. Dogs and cats living together. The world's ending. I mean, holy cow. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And, uh, and let me tell you about, okay, backup generators. Yeah. Most, of, most of them are uh, diesel powered. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a problem with that. If they're not properly maintained and the fuel is not rotated or what's called polished, which is filtered on a routine basis, FEMA did a study, 25% of generators will fail within the first 24 hours. Oh. So all these places that say, oh, we're, we'll be fine. We have a backup generator. Well, really? What, when's the last time it was tested? When, do you ever have the fuel polished in it? And even if you say had a generator that was properly maintained and, and you know your fuel was still good and so forth, biggest problem is you're going to lose, in California, you'll lose about 40% of your refining capacity. Mm-hmm. Because now the refinery I worked at, we had cogeneration plants. We could yeah. actually island ourselves and run. But the vast majority of them don't have that, okay? Then an even bigger problem is how do you get it distributed? There aren't enough fuel trucks probably in the entire country oh, to geez. service enough generators to, to keep the state of California going. I, and, and then here's another thing. Even if you have, say... The, the guy who has the Tesla power walls and he's got the solar panels. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's sitting there in his house. Doors getting knocked on every, every couple minutes with neighbors showing up with extension cords, wanting to plug into it. Guess what? He doesn't have any job to go to. His kids can't go to school. Just like you talked about the, the, the whole concept of a prepper and he's just like this standalone guy and he's going to be able to do everything. We need each other. Yeah, we do. You know, it's a society, you know, and, you know, to borrow a phrase, it does take a village. So. Christopher, can I take, what about, this is so funny. I was just 
literally last week looking at uh, a backup generator okay mm-hmm. i mean i've got a portable one that i got years ago that i've never really used and there's no way there's it's been clean there's nothing in it you know there's no fuel to, it's it's a good shape but it's not an it's not a long-term answer it's more like if we had a tornado around here that took out power for a couple of days kind of thing you know uh-huh. um but what about the ones that ha- are fueled by natural gas well they're they're better because it's cleaner here's but here's the problem and, and what's interesting is California, most of their uh, compressor stations that compress the natural gas and push it on the pipeline, they're self-sustaining, meaning they pull gas out of the ground, they scrub it, and then they run an, an engine that uses natural gas. And then that actually turns a compressor, which compresses it for the rest. So that's a closed loop system. They'll be fine. The problem is, is that that's not the way it is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Most of the uh, natural gas compressors are electric. So unless you have a big propane tank, all right, you know, you're, maybe you'll have natural gas. Maybe you won't, you know, maybe there's enough pressure to keep it going. Maybe there isn't. I still think it's a better, a better plan. Yeah. The other thing too, is if you have to get like the triple fuel ones, I think they can run on gasoline, natural gas, and propane. The thing is, you can always, you know, find propane cylinders. And, and I'll tell you, after writing my own book, uh, one of the things that I have in our emergency kit uh-huh. is a set of bolt cutters. All right. So here's a big cage of all this propane sitting there. The point of sale is down. It's locked. You know what? If it's your family or, you know, I can go give the store money later on and pay right. for my propane. But you know, it comes down to it. The other thing is uh, another good thing you want to have, and you can get them on Amazon uh, pretty cheap, is a siphon hose. Yeah. You know, because, you know, hey, you, not saying you'd be necessarily stealing gas, but you might have two cars and one of them is the one that you're going to use to bug out. Well, it's only on a quarter tank and the other car is almost full. So you're going to want to transfer some fuel. There's a, a million things to think about. It's so true. You have to just, and you know, like I said, I've, I've originally from Oklahoma, I've survived tornadoes that kill people two blocks over and been without power for extended periods. And it's, it's just the, it's just the thing you walk in a room and you flip a light switch. And then when it doesn't work, you're like, Oh, or all the things you think will work, all the things you think should be just fine. Like, well, how come we don't have any water? Cause the water pump doesn't work now. We have a well, it doesn't matter. We don't have a water pump. Um, right. It's funny because I also keep about three propane tanks around at any one time. And I, I switch them out as I go, because not just for like, uh, just for my cooking, but also I have a couple of propane heaters for outside if I want to, you know, that kind sure. of thing. So I, I think I'm ahead of the game a little bit, but to your point, everything runs out, if, especially in a situation that you're talking about here. The, the last thing I was just going to say, though, I was also looking at uh, solar powered generators, but I'm just wondering if those really have the oomph to, to take care of business or not. Any thoughts on those? Uh, well, I mean, if you have enough, enough roof space, you have enough sunlight, you know, and you have battery storage, you know, like a Tesla power wall, mm-hmm. you can live off the grid. And that's, that's one of the vignettes is like I said, there's this character and they invested in it. But the problem is every, you know, and all the neighbors know, Hey, you got solar. They heard you got this. Oh, wow, wow, wow. And they're impressed with it. And then as soon as the, you know, what hits the fan, they're over there knocking on your door yeah. and 
you know, and that, that comes, then it becomes a situation of like, well, do I really help them out or do I help my family? And like I said, you're still going to be isolated. Yeah. You're going to have lights and, you know, your kids can watch DVDs on TV and so forth, but you have no job to go to anymore. Right. Right. And, and another one is let's talk about employment. None of the ATMs are going to work. You're not going to, you're not going to have access to any of your money. All the banks shut down the ATMs. I talked to my sister. She was a vice president at Wells Fargo. And she said, oh yeah. She said the safe won't open. She goes, the computer terminals don't work, obviously. She says, and the ATM's not going to work. So one of the other things that you need to keep, you know, stored away is a good amount of cash. And what you want is you want cash in small denominations. Yeah. You don't want 20s because somebody has a case of water. Well, now that case of water is 20 bucks because they're they don't they can't make you change. Right. You know, so have probably a thousand dollars in small bills, you know, if you have a gun safe, put it in your gun safe or whatever, wherever you want to hide it. But you're going to need that because yeah. society is going to come to a screeching halt. And I'll tell you, the scariest one, too, is medical. Yes. You have uh, one of the, the characters in the book, the uh, single mom. She lives with her mom who has uh, regular, uh, <clears throat> she has uh, kidney issues. So she has to get dialysis. I spoke to a dialysis tech. Most dialysis clinics do not have backup generators. You don't have backup generator, you aren't going to get dialysis. Most hospitals only have like maybe one or two dialysis, portable dialysis machines that they use just in-house. They aren't going to be able to, you know, treat the overwhelming number of people who need dialysis. Another one is diabetes. You have to keep that insulin cold. And then you look at people that have medical devices that are powered by electricity, like oxygen concentrators, uh, BPAP machines, and so forth. Yeah. There, there is a, a website I found in some FEMA documentation, and it's Health and Human Services. And you can go in and uh, you can put in either by zip code, by county, by state, and you can look, and it's based upon Medicare uh, records. And I've spoken to a lot of uh, people in the know, and they said, oh, it's probably m way more than that. But in the state of California, there are over 70,000 people who have medical devices that rely on electricity. Right. So all of a sudden, you know, the, the lights go out and your machine goes out and it's like, it could, it could be the end right there. Well, you know, you always hear in these like zombie movies you know that the, the the living will envy the dead or after a nuclear you know and, you, and frankly now you've got me thinking no but no seriously this, what you've got me thinking christopher is that this is going to be one hell of a read and um you know what we're not going to give away anything more about the end you, you gave away just enough but i cannot wait to get to this one this is going to be great kid in the time we we just have so little time left because this has been so fun and it's my fault because i I just eat this stuff up, but I, I love talking about it with you. But let me ask you a couple of quick things. Sure. Um, you're like probably a candidate for world's most interesting man, I think, for a lot of reasons. Uh, let's start, though. We got to start real quick. Eddie Haskell, you have written one of the most highest rated celebrity biographies on Amazon about a guy, who Ken Osmond, who was an actor who, who played an iconic character from the 50s on Leave it to Beaver. Real quick, how did that fall in your lap and, and how was that experience for you? Well. It was interesting because I saw on Yahoo 
that it was trending. It said Frank Bank dies. And I didn't know who Frank Bank was. Well, it kept trending. And then they put a little in parentheses, they put Lumpy. So the guy who played Lumpy on the TV show, Leave it to Beaver, he had passed on. So I thought, oh, wow, he died. And I, so I I looked, I clicked on it and it talked about how he had written a biography. And I, I thought, oh, wow, I wonder if the other characters had. So Jerry Mathers, the Beaver, he'd written a biography. Uh, Lumpy had written one, but Eddie Haskell had not. And so I like to say as a writer, and you know this, that, you know, you shoot a lot of arrows into the air. Sometimes you send a book and, you know, well, maybe, maybe somebody at CNN will hold it up or something, you know, on the air with any luck. But anyway, so I send this book, I write a pitch letter and I send them a copy of One-Eyed Jack, my, my crime novel about a professional blackmailer. And I send it off to him and I, you know, I just forget all about it and everything. I'm just like, ah, he probably gets this, you know, people wanting to write his life story all the time. Well, about a month and a half later, I get a phone call and it's, it's Ken. And he says, uh, yeah, hey, Chris. He said, this is Ken Osman. He says, I'm really enjoying your book, One-Eyed Jack. And uh, yeah, why don't we get together and have a beer and talk about your writing my life story? So as I tell people, I was obviously thrilled, not because I might be writing this life story, but because I was going to be drinking with Eddie Haskell. <laughs> and not many people could say that. Nope. <laughs> And so anyways, uh, met with him and we developed a really great friendship, uh, got to know him. And, you know, after the book came out and it was really, really popular and everybody was asking me, so you're going to start writing celebrity biographies. And I said, honestly, I said, you know what, there's, you can't swing a dead cat in LA without hitting an ex-child actor. All right. And I said, Ken, not only became like this you know gold standard of like sneaky kids but and the poster boy for them but he also had an incredibly amazing life yeah i mean he cheated death he got shot at multiple times hit you know he got shot at a point blank range in a doorway and when he was an lapd cop he and his brother had a helicopter company for a while and they ended up crashing in an intersection. And Ken was located on the outside of the helicopter. How he lived through that one, I don't know. The guy, like, he had like nine lives. And they were all interesting lives. And, and then there was the John Holmes thing. Do you know about that? Well, I know, I know who John Holmes was. Uh... Well, okay. There was a rumor that went around in the 70s. Oh, no. That Ken Osmond was John Holmes. <laughs> and they did... They did resemble each other from the neck up. And I knew about it. I actually believed it when I was a kid. Somebody told me that. They go, yeah, that guy was on Eddie. He's Eddie Haskell. That's this guy, you know? Well, suffice it to say, I I won't spoil it, but there's a great chapter in the book where Ken actually gets called on the carpet. He's working as an LAPD officer when this all happens. And he, he didn't know about it. And he gets called on the carpet by internal affairs and they want to know how many adult films he made. And I was like, bingo. All right. I didn't know that. And very few people outside of Ken's family and his close friends knew about this incident with the LAPD. And you know how it is like all of a sudden somebody says something and you're like, yes, thank you, God. It's like, I'm going to hang my hat on that one. Yes. Yeah. So you're you're looking for that magic thing. That one thing that's going to. Yeah. Yep. 
So yeah. yeah, I used to be a journalist too. So of course you're always looking for that magic, that great quote or that great story hook. You can put it all on. So, oh mm-hmm. my God, that's so fantastic. Now did, we just lost Tony Dow. Did you interview Tony or Jerry for the, uh, for the book? Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I only met Jerry just recently. Uh, I interviewed him over the phone, but Tony and I got to know each other very well. Yeah. Matter of fact, he and I used to go bike riding. We used to go hiking together. Tony has been to my house. I've been over to his house up in Topanga. Got to yeah. know his his wife, Lauren, very well. Uh, he was- great guy. Uh, everybody, including Tony's wife, wanted me to write his life story, but Tony just was kind of humble about it. And yeah. he didn't, he felt he would be calling attention to himself yeah you know christopher uh i think cbs sunday morning featured him like middle of last year or something and then all of a sudden you find out he's he's ill a few months later and then you find out there was word he died prematurely before he actually died and then a few weeks later i think or a couple of weeks later he did pass but he seemed genuine and kind oh. and humble oh yeah he yeah, really he did. was yeah he, he was he was a wonderful man and he was a renaissance man he had so much talent an artist that people didn't know about and actually uh when i was uh, i don't know if i put in my biography i used to teach writing at a prison oh a maximum security prison in california i taught there for two years taught creative writing and the reason i got connected with writing up there was because i had actually gone up there and written a couple articles one was on a a program that they have, they have a veterans group in the prison, and they would do food fundraisers to raise money to send care packages to our troops overseas. So it took me about six months to get the approval, but I was able to go into a maximum security prison and do that story. Well, I was in the middle of working on Ken's book, and it was interviewing Tony Dow. And I, he said, what else do you write? And I told him, I said, well, I just did this article on this uh, program in prison. And this veterans group and so forth. And I said, and I knew Tony was an artist. And I said, you know, they have a really neat art program up there too. I said, it's just amazing. And he said, oh, I would love to see that. So I go, well, let me make a call. And so I, I make a call. Next thing you know, I'm going up there with Tony Dow. <laughs> and now if somebody would have gone back to me in my twenties or something and tapped me on the shoulder, come from the future and tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, Chris, one of these days, you're going to be driving up, you're going to be going into a maximum security prison with one of the stars of Leave it to Beaver. <laughs> I would have said, I don't know what planet you're from, but you need to get back there. Uh, but, oh, yeah, it was it was a great experience. And then Ken Osmond came up there with me and oh. and he visited with the veterans group because he was a veteran himself right. and was he he said, I am an unabashed flag waver. So he met with this veterans group and and I wrote about his visit up there for American Legion magazine, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a great experience, you know, teaching up there and and so well, forth. And you've done so much. And I gosh, I hate it that the clock on the wall is telling me I got to hurry. But I'm just going to tell you that. So you've climbed some of the highest peaks in the world. You've ridden your bike across Cuba. You've flown on the vomit comet, and you <laughs> and you you you've done tornado chasing. My brother in Oklahoma, he was a tornado chaser for years. I mean, you guys are nuts, by the way. But 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 I mean, you have led such a life, and it could. I, and I hate to say, hey, get your whole life philosophy down to two sentences. But I mean, <laughs> what is it? What is it with you, man? Why are you? Why are you wired like this as an adventurer? Uh, you know, I just. I guess I, I grew up poor mm-hmm. and it was very limited. And then once I kind of started having some money and I remember just thinking like, you know, it'd be neat to do this. And then I just asked myself, I said, 
Well, then why don't you do it? You have the money. So, yeah. So I would just start setting these goals and achieving them. And the greatest one I, the, the greatest achievement I have though, is the one I'm most proud of is I trained and led a group of blind hikers uh, to the highest point in Los Angeles County, 10,000 foot Mount Baldy. We trained for four months. I used to, uh, I was in a hiking group. I was a leader. And so I enlisted other people to be what's called site guides, work with the Braille Institute. There's a documentary film that was filmed of it that's supposed to come out this year. I don't know, but I, you know, it was great. I, I got 11 hikers to the summit of the highest point in Los Angeles County, third highest peak in Southern California. And yeah, 10,000 foot, it's called Baldy for the Blind. If you, if you Google that, you'll see a, uh, a video, uh, just a, a video trailer, just a teaser. And you'll see me in there and working with the blind people and so forth. And that was, that was a great experience. And, you know, after it was all over, we were sitting in a restaurant, we we're kind of having a celebratory dinner. It had been a long day, about 13 hours time. We got up there and came back down. And I was sitting there and I was looking at all the, the blind hikers and all the site guides that had stuck it out with the four months with me. And somebody said, what do you think? You know, I was just sitting there just kind of staring. They said, what are you thinking? And I said, you know what I'm thinking? I said, the greatest achievement here for me wasn't climbing the mountain. I've climbed that before. The greatest achievement was bringing 32 people together for a common goal and achieving it. And I said, because, you know, in the end, it wasn't about a mountain. It was about people. That's what it was about. Christopher J. Lynch is the author of the One-Eyed Jack crime novel series about a professional blackmailer. His debut novel in the series won a, uh, it was a 2013 Seamus Award finalist and a 2014 Writer's Digest Honorable Mention for Genre Fiction. As we mentioned, he is the author of Eddie, The Life and Times of America's Preeminent Bad Boy biography of ken osmond and his latest work which you've got to put on the top of your list and look i know it's going to scare the crap out of you but let's hope it's in a good way and maybe it'll help you prepare your your own home for what may happen it's called dark state a modern day thriller about a terrorist attack that takes down california's electrical grid you can find out more about this gentleman christopher j lynch at christopher j lynch that's l y n c h.com and don't worry it'll be in the show notes at mgopod.com or wherever you get this podcast but Christopher, I could talk to you all day. Um, <laughs> part of it's because I'm like getting free consulting on surviving a disaster from you. But to, hey, you know what? The, you pay your money, it takes your chances when you're on this show. Uh, Chris, <laughs> seriously, you, you're just a total gent and what a life. And, and listen, I, I hope you'll do us the honor of coming back with your next project here on Mysterious Goings On. Absolutely. Absolutely, Alex. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. You know, I could talk with you all day long, too. By the way, where do you live? Kansas City, Missouri. Okay. All right. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> and you're in Tennessee, right? So yes. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, Hey, I got a friend in Memphis. Maybe, maybe one of these days our paths will cross. Sounds great. Have you lost your belief in finding a really good mystery thriller? Well, trust me, you've got to have faith pilots faith. 
Kirkus Review says of the book that Greenwood pulls many tricks from his writer's satchel, has a quirkiness and energy, and snappy, snarky dialogue that keeps things moving briskly. A well-handled mystery with the appropriate twist at the end. Midwest Book Review says newcomers to Pilot will find no barriers to quick immersion in his personality and situation, while prior series readers immediately become involved in another conundrum which tests his skills and the ways in which others view him in his world. Surviving a recent attempt on his life, a weary John Pilot returns to Cross Township, where a bizarre string of shootings has paralyzed the tiny college burg. Pilot joins forces with the law to find out why people are being terrorized in his name and stop it. Unfortunately, when he turns to his family for support, he finds only hardened hearts. People are dying, accusing fingers are being pointed his way, and he has nowhere left to turn. Everything John Pilot believes in, family, sanity, and even himself, are shaken to the core in Pilot's faith. Online Book Club says, It's a gripping and fun story that kept me hooked. Greenwood's writing style is dynamic, and the book reads like a movie script. You can get John Pilot's series number eight, Pilot's Faith, exclusively in paperback and ebook on Amazon.com. And remember, in the end, it all comes down to faith. Pilot's Faith. A Caroline Street Press book by J. Alexander Greenwood. Thanks for joining us on Mysterious Goings-On. Be sure to follow Mysterious Goings-On wherever you get your podcast and never miss an episode. Don't forget, you can get the links to books and other things mentioned on the show at mgopod.com. Until next time, keep reading. Keep reading.